بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على محمد النبي الأمين وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين ربنا لا تزغ قلوبنا بعد إذ أنهديتنا وهب لنا من لدنك رحمة ربنا عليك توكلنا وإليك المصير اللهم أنت هدانا وملجأنا فكن لنا يا علي عظيم ونم علينا باتباع سنة النبي المصطفى الأمين عليه أوضر الصلاة والصلاة والتسليم الحمد لله Every generation of Muslims confront their own set of challenges. Every generation of Muslims confront their own set of challenges. Allah, who has breathed into our bodies, a divine soul, a breath, a divine breath that came from Allah directly to give us our lives, gave us the most valuable, the most valuable trust that Allah has given any of Allah's creatures gave us the intellect and the word and told us as he told as Allah told his Prophet Iqra read in a clear indication that this intellect can either either elevate us to the greatest heights, lift us to the greatest heights, or can in fact take us to the lowest levels. It is this intellect that enabled us to learn the names of things when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the angel to, angels to prostrate before Adam and demonstrates God's wisdom by teaching Adam the names when Allah taught Adam the names and teaching Adam the names is a demonstrative example of the power of the intellect, the ability of the intellect to absorb and to analyze and to comprehend and to judge, to evaluate and to judge. And it is this judgment that either puts us in a place where we discharge our covenant with Allah, when Allah then gave human beings a covenant and made it quite direct. Either we elevate ourselves 
by judging correctly, by thinking correctly, or we degrade ourselves by misusing that gift that Allah gave us, the intellect. Every generation confronts its own set of challenges. And Allah made it very clear to us. It said, Allah does not change the condition of the people until they first change what is in themselves. Allah does not change unless you change what is inside yourself. This is a very heavy burden and a very heavy responsibility because it is a responsibility to take hold of our own will and power and our own judgment and to know that there is in the same way that there is a physical biological, physical, material logic in the world, there's also a moral, ethical logic in the world. If you do things the right way, you end in the right place. I start with this introduction I start with this introduction because we Muslims, and especially here, Muslims in the West, Muslims in the United States, confront serious challenges on the frontier of moral judgment. And how we negotiate these moral challenges and how we navigate this obligation and particularly how we navigate what Islam, God's message, stands for in our own minds, in the minds of our children, and as a social cultural force in the societies we live in, so much of our destiny, so much of what Allah decides to do with us as a people will precisely depend on how we navigate what Islam, and here I'm going to in a second say what I mean by when I say what Islam stands for, what I mean precisely what Islamic tradition and system of belief stands for. What concerns me the most is a tendency, I can't claim that it's recent, but it seems to have been exasperated uh, lately a tendency for especially Muslims in the West to experience what I can only describe as a state of moral regression, an ethical regression. Once upon a time, so many believed that Muslims who traveled to the West and settled in the West or grew up in the West might be the moral force that could pioneer the rebirth of an Islamic awakening. It, the idea was quite logical that since there is so much despotism and authoritarianism all over the Muslim world, 
And since so much of the Muslim world was colonized and dominated and controlled, that Muslims who come to the West and experience the liberating air of freedom and who enjoy civil rights and who have the protection of law coupled with the freedom to investigate and to think that these Muslims, Muslims of the West, might then become an inspiration to reclaiming the moral force of Islam in the modern age. This was particularly a very powerful idea in the 60s and 70s and even 80s, throughout the 80s, before the rise of Islamophobia, of course. The problem, though, is what we started witnessing, especially in the last couple of decades, is that Muslims in the West, instead of being that pioneering ethical civilizing force, ran into an enormous set of problems. I'm going to focus on, on just a few aspects of them in this khutbah, because there are a number that we can talk about, and we can't talk about all of them, in, in obviously, in one khutbah. But the most important, in my view, is that Muslims in the West started exhibiting all the symptoms that you find among a defeated, colonized people, as if the air of freedom and the protection of the societies to which they immigrated to didn't really matter. And in my view, and I'm going to give examples in, in one second, but, and in my view, the reason Muslims in the West started exhibiting the symptomology of a defeated people is directly related to Middle Eastern and particularly Gulf money. It is as if there are people in the world that noticed that Muslims in the West could be an ethically progressive and pioneering force and noticed that if Muslims in the West are ethically progressive and pioneering, they will constitute a threat to despots and dictators around the world and then directly started controlling the institutions and even the very discourse that comes out of the mouth and intellects and hearts of Muslims in the West. Let me give you an example of what I mean by a reactionary, regressive moral force. Among the problems that have existed for centuries in the Islamic civilization is a very touchy and at the same time sinister doctrine the idea that those in power, that those in power are not in power because 
they were they are either supported or unsupported by their constituency, by the people they rule over, but rather that those in power are Allah's color, that they are Allah's destiny. And so if you rebel against those in power, or you even dissent against those in power, or you disagree against those in power, that somehow then you are rebelling against Allah's destiny. This is a very old idea. Very old idea. In fact, some of it's for, and, in, and, and it wasn't just in Islam, it was in Christianity and Judaism and all, in the old ancient world, is was known as the divine right to rule. I am in power because God wants me to be in power, and if you rebel against me, then you are rebelling against God. That was known as the divine right to rule. Humanity, human beings, led a long struggle to liberate the human mind from the idea of the divine right to rule. To basically look at the ruler and say, there's nothing divine about you. You are an employee serving me as a citizen. If you do right, I support you. If you do wrong, I oppose you. All of humanity progressed morally, ethically, to that position. And we human beings, when we got rid of the notion of the divine right to rule, we liberated, we liberated societies and cultures to get rid of certain things like indentured service, slavery, we discovered the idea of human rights, the idea of civic rights, and even the idea of civil society. None of these could have existed if the notion of the divine right to rule still existed. In Islam, after the Prophet died, who ruled by divine right. The Prophet, as a Prophet, Prophet, ruled by divine right. In Sunni Islam, among the most revolutionary inventions for its time and age, time and age among the most revolutionary inventions, was that Abu Bakr ruled without a divine right to rule. Omar ruled without a divine right to rule. So did Osman and so did Ali. In other words, once upon a time, we Muslims was ahead of, were ahead of the curve, ahead of the entire world. When Britain and France and the Netherlands were still in the darkness of the idea of a divine right to rule, we Muslims were ahead of the curve where Umar ibn al-Khattab, where Abu Bakr says, I, I rule over you, but I am not the best among you. And then Umar says something very similar, nearly identical, and says, if I do right, correct, support me, and if I do wrong, correct me even by a sword. But these ideas were way ahead of their time, at that time. And shortly after the death of Ali, when the first Muslim dynasty came to power, the first thing the Amawad dynasty did was starting to rekindle the idea of divine right to rule. And the Amawad Khalifa would call himself Zulmullah fil Ard. I am Allah's shadow on this earth. 
reclaiming the idea of divine rightly rule. The Emirates kept insisting on that, that they are Allah's shadows on earth, until after over a hundred years, they were overthrown in a revolution by the Abbasids who came to power. And after a while, again, started to, to attempted to rekindle the idea of divine right to rule. People, it took centuries for human beings to progress ethically to the point where they say, no, there is no divine right to rule, there is civil society, civic rights, citizenship. It was a human progress. In other words, to discover what our founding fathers in the person of the rightly guided Khulafa, Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Ali, to, had established centuries ago, but finally the rest of humanity was saying this idea of God's shadow on earth and that the Sultan gets his, the right to rule from Allah directly is very sinister because if you if if a sultan claims a divine right then how can i restrain an unjust ruler lo and behold lo and behold like a defeated people where do you find the jargon and the discourse of divine right to rule peer its ugly head once again. Can you believe among Muslims in America? Recently I saw a class by Hamza Yusuf. Hamza Yusuf is talking about the Syrian revolution And he cites to a hadith by Abu Bakr and basically says, well, you know, the hadith says, Man ahana sultan ahanahullah. Whoever degrades a ruler, Allah degrades him. What is the implication here? The Syrian people degraded the ruler, so they deserve to be degraded. They are sowing what they planted. Why am I saying Hamza Yusuf? Because of what this, I'm not picking on the man. I am, what concerns me is what that represents. And I'll give other examples in a second. Muslims in the West, instead of being an ethically progressive force, they are being an ethically regressive, reactionary force. A defeated people put the blame on the victim. That's what powerless people do. That's what powerless people do. This is why when a woman gets raped in a patriarchal society, in a society that in which men have no justice and are broken, who do they blame? The rapist? No, they blame the victim. If you work in law, you know that. It's not ethically upright people that blame the victim. It's ethically broken people. So when you look at the suffering of a people like the Syrian people, and you say, well, they should have stayed home. Because whoever insults their sultan, Allah insults them. All these Syrian women who have been raped, all these men who have been tortured, all the Syrian men who have been killed, and this is your commentary? Man ahana sultan ahana Allah? 
I don't. It's a moral, ethical issue. Now, the hadith is da'if. And even Tirmidhi, who mentioned this hadith, said Hassan Gharib. The hadith the hadith been transmitted by Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr says, and that's one version of the hadith. In one version, Abu Bakr says, I heard the Prophet say, whoever insults the Sultan, Allah will, whoever degrades the Sultan, Allah will degrade him. But the context of the hadith gives us pause. What happened is the following. Abdullah ibn Amr, he was a Sahabi, a companion of the Prophet, who was appointed, well, he was, when the Prophet died, he was about 13 years old. Abdullah ibn Amr was appointed by Uthman as the governor of Basra. While he was a governor of Basra, the report says that Abdullah ibn Amr got up on a podium wearing fancy colored clothes. When he got up on a podium wearing fancy colored clothes, some people, and in some reports they don't tell us precisely who is it, said, look at this fasik, look at this sinner. He's wearing the clothes of fasaka. He's wearing the clothes of sinners. So Abu Bakr, Abu Bakr is not Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr is a, a different human being altogether. Abu Bakr purportedly at that point goes to the person who said this and says, don't say that because I heard the prophet say, who insults or degrades the Sultan, Allah will degrade him. Now, Abdullah ibn Amir, the governor of Basra, if you understand the historical context, is a story in himself. He was a man known for his generosity, known for being one of the greatest commanders in Islamic history. Abdullah ibn Amir was among the leading commanders that confronted the armies of Persia and defeated the armies of Persia, was a man of exceeding piety. But, there is a little bit of controversy attached to Abdullah ibn Amr. And that is when Uthman radiallahu anh, the third Khalifa, died, Abdullah ibn Amr, although he was Uthman's appointee governor over Basra, Abdullah ibn Amr decided to join the forces of Aisha and Ibn Zubair and Talha and Ibn Zubair and, and fought on their side in the Battle of Camel. That's why he's unusual. Usually, if you were on Osman's side, you're not going to support the Camel people. But he was unusual. Now, you want to compare someone with the morals and generosity and historical record of Abdullah ibn Amr one of the great leaders of Islam to Hafiz al-Assad or to CC or to MBS or MBZ? Are you serious? What is wrong with your brain, man? On top of that, in fact, The reason the story is quite inauthentic, and I'll explain to you what I mean by that in a second. And Huzaifa, 
قال تجهز ناس من بني عبس إلى عثمان ليقاتلوه فقال حذيفة ما سعى قوم ليذلوا سلطان الله في الأرض إلا أذلهم الله قبل أن يموتوا So here Huzayfa gives us a hint as to the real background of the story. Huzayfa says that there were people that got together from Bani Abs to go when they laid siege to Uthman and planned to assassinate Uthman radiallahu anhu. So Huzayfa comments, you know, never a people will go to try to get after a sultan, to degrade that sultan, to harm that sultan, without Allah degrading them and harming them. So what happened here? What happened is that this opinion emerged in early Islam, but it emerged about the person of Uthman because there were people, because Uthman was assassinated. And it emerged as a political opinion in trying to convince people not to support the assassination of Uthman. It was then later on narrated instead of the opinion of companions at the time of Uthman into a hadith. Does everyone follow? It was later on narrated, from, made from a political opinion into a hadith and attributed to Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr is a problematic person. If he said it, it's problematic. Because as a narrator of hadith, Abu Bakr was problematic. And if he didn't say it, it's problematic. Because quite often when it came to the issue of politics, the pro-government faction, whatever the faction they were, whether pro-Uthman, pro-Ali, pro-Muawiyah, they would invent hadith that in the, in the language of the age, would try to convince people not to cause political trouble. So, different versions of this hadith gives us something, gives us a bit more, and tells us, again, all going back to Abu Bakr, that a sultan zulmullahful ard, the Sultan is Allah's shadow on earth. And we know that this, this is something that the Amads pounced on and attempted to claim for themselves. But the reason these traditions were always problematic in Islamic history were for two reasons. Please be patient and pay attention. For two reasons. <clears throat> One, because you have someone like the grandson of the Prophet Al-Hussein radiallahu People like Al-Hussein rebelled against unjust rulers. Do you think Al-Hussein would have rebelled against an unjust ruler if he was taught by the Prophet that an unjust ruler is Allah's shadows on earth and you can't insult them and you can't rebel against them? How dare you? Al-Hussein, the Prophet's grandson, والسلام, we don't need to hear from Abu Bakr because the practice of Al-Hussein trumps all else. But there is another reason, and even a more significant one. Oh, people, the Quran. The Quran. The Quran tells us what part of the tradition is legitimate and what part is suspect. When Allah tells 
Jesus Do not do not surrender yourself to the unjust. When Allah tells us Allah Allah doesn't love the Zalameen, did Allah insult unjust rulers? Can Allah command us not to insult unjust rulers and then Allah insults unjust rulers by saying, I don't love, I don't like them. In fact, when Allah says, My covenant will not be given to the unjust. Think about it. How can Allah tell us, those unjust rulers are your destiny, and if you rebel against them, you're rebelling against me. But at the same time, tell us in the Quran, my covenant, my support is not given to unjust rulers. When Allah tells us, لا عدوان إلا على الظالمين You are not allowed to be aggressive. And demand your rights aggressively, except with the zalimeen, with the unjust. So when Allah teaches us our morality and tells us, do not surrender yourself to the unjust. You do not be aggressive except with the unjust. When Allah says, I don't give my covenant to the unjust, I don't love the unjust, then we need someone to come and tell us. Don't insult the Sultan even if that Sultan is unjust. Because if you do, Allah will insult you. People, the problem is these issues were at the beginning of Islam. I wrote an entire book published by Cambridge Press called Rebellion and Violence in Islamic Law where I studied all of that ages ago. The problem is, is that 1,200 years ago, over 1,200 years ago, to be maybe even 13 plus 100 years ago, Muslims already worked out these issues. Muslims already debated these issues. The books of fiqh are so full of material that, for instance, Ibn Taymiyyah, in discussing these traditions about the Sultan being Allah's shadow on earth and all of that stuff that Hamza Yusuf cited, Ibn Taymiyyah concludes that you should not support an unjust ruler even feeding a meal to an unjust ruler is being part of the injustice of an unjust ruler and your fate in the hereafter is like him. Ibn Taymiyyah says if you sow a for an unjust ruler, then you are like him. We worked these issues over centuries. The whole world has moved on to re-understanding that injustice and despotism is ugly and horrible and unacceptable. The whole world has taught us about democracy, about human rights, about civic society. The whole world, we've created things like the United Nations and the Universal Declaration for Human Rights and the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the Covenant on Economic and Cultural Rights. And after all of this, Muslims, converts in the United States take us back 1400 years and tell us, if you insult an unjust ruler, Allah is going to insult you. What has happened to Islam? We are killing our religion. If Muhammad Abdul or a Kawakibi or an Afghani would come out of their graves, I am sure they would suffer a heart attack out of sadness and shock and go right back into their graves again. What happened? This is blaming the victim. When a defeated people find themselves powerless, they blame not the rapist, but the victim. So, we look at Palestinians today, like, exactly like the Saudis and Emiratis do, and say, oh, they deserve it. Why did they go out in demonstrations? Why did they throw stones? 
Why don't you just sit home and accept their fate? Have you looked at Saudi media, and Emirati media, and Egyptian media? They all blame the Palestinians. They want the Palestinians to stay there silently and be killed, and tortured, and imprisoned, and go to their graves quietly and silently, and don't disturb business, don't make trouble. The Israelis, before Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem, killed tens of Palestinians. It was reported in Egyptian and Saudi and Emirati media as 27 Palestinians die in fire exchanges with the Israelis. Not one Israeli died. Not one Israeli was even injured. What fire exchanges? The Palestinians are the victims. They are the, the occupied. The Syrian people are the victims. The Egyptian people are the victims. The Yemeni people are the victims. Let's be clear because before Allah, if you don't know the difference between just and unjust, at least in your heart, then you have nothing that can defend you before Allah. Look at the irony and the embarrassment. In that same video, Hamza Yusuf, says about the Syrian revelation, a revolution. We're not ready. Muslims are not ready. We shouldn't rebel. Why? Because we're not ready. We're not ready for what? We're not ready for democracy. We don't have civic society. This is why you go to school. This is why you go to school and you study and you get degrees. How do you create civic society? You create, you, you don't be ready first and then when you have civic society, you rebel. Because civic society is born out of practice. You can live a million years under CC and under Assad and under MBS and under MBZ and, and Batik. You will never have civic society and will never be ready because you cannot be ready under despotism. You can, it is only paying the cost, the price for freedom that makes you ready. You know who else said we're not ready for democracy? Colonialism. Colonialism, have you ever heard of the white man's burden? Colonialism ruled the entire world, colonized the entire world. Why? Because it was the white man's burden to teach the native civilization. And when they're ready, eventually, to teach them democracy. Study history. Well, hundreds of years have passed now. Palestine is gone. Palestinians live oppressed and degraded and worthless. And the rest of the Muslim world, during colonialism and after colonialism, has never been ready. This is what we hear from dictators all the time. We're not ready for democracy. We're not ready for civil society. So when you have a white convert, repeat the same jargon of colonialism and the white man's burden. What do I say except shame on you? Except to say there is no hope. Wake up Muslims and understand we're not playing a game of fan club. It is not whether you like this person personally or you don't like this person personally. He could be the, the, the most wonderful human being on the face of the earth, as a human being. But there are rules for thought and ideas. There is a history. There is a, a, a whole body of literature that educates us about politics and sociology and anthropology and culture and that we must read before we open our mouths. And that if you are not equipped, then leave it alone. 
when Muslims sit there and say, oh, well, yeah, maybe this hadith is from Allah and that's just part of the tradition. Oh, my God. Centuries are lost. All the work that we've done over centuries to challenge the idea of divine rule is lost and gone. Why did these people convert to Islam? Did they convert to Islam so they can go read the medieval books and regurgitate them as if they're truth to us? Is that why? To bring back the backwardness and, and, and reactionary reactionaryism. <laughs> SubhanAllah! It's, it is beyond suffocating. We're not ready. Forgive me. Your country is the United States. You're a white man. The fact that you're Muslim doesn't make you colored. And for a convert who is a U.S. citizen, say we are not ready. Who are you talking about? Syrians? Egyptians? Indians? Pakistanis? Who put you in a position to have an opinion about their fate? But there is a final point. Right now, the Emirat and Saudi are spending enormous amount of money on Islam in the West. Enormous amount of money. The Islam they want it is an Islam that condemns anything but the doctrine of obedience to the ruler. Blind obedience. Blind obedience to the ruler. But you know, when you sit there, and this is a call, a condemning political Islam. The Emirat tells you that they are fighting political Islam because political Islam is evil. Islam that wants justice, Islam that wants democracy, Islam that wants rights is evil. And we don't want these Islamists and these political Islamists. But, you know, you, don't, you can dislike the, this group or that group. I have no business with that. I don't belong to any group and I don't follow any political group. But I, I, I know what ethics are and what justice is. When you sit there and you tell people, obey an unjust ruler, guess what? You are practicing political Islam. You have become part of political Islam. That is the irony of all ironies. The Emirat supports Haftar in Libya and says the hadith about obedience to the ruler applies as far as when Haftar gives you a command, but not when the Wifaq government gives you a command in Libya. The Emirat supports the forces of, that want the independence of South of Yemen, the so-called Quwat al-Nukhba or whatever their name. So if the southern Yemeni forces give you an order, then you should obey it. But if Hadi, the government of Hadi gives you an order, no, that's not the Sultan that the Hadith is talking about. The Emirat supported the rebellion against Mursi. So when the pro-Mursi people were going around citing the same Hadith, by the way, you have to obey Mursi because he's Sultan. And he is the Allah shadows on earth. And it's haram to rebel against them. And I used to attack them with the same ferocity that I'm doing now. But once Morsi got... But, and at the time, the pro-Emiratis would say, no, 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 this hadith is not correct, it's inauthentic. No, no, no. You, you can overthrow Morsi, it's bad. Once they overthrew Morsi, then they started using the same hadith to support Sisi. That's the hypocrisy of lack of ethics. And it is fine, not fine, but I can understand it when I see colonized 
dominated, oppressed societies fall in this type of confusion. But American Muslims and Muslims in the West, then I turn to Allah and say, La hawla wa quwwata illa billah. Allah wa ni'mal wakil. What? Then there's no hope. Then I don't know where to turn. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. Because 30 years of scholarship and things seem to get steadily worse, not better. The irony of ironies. Irony of ironies. It is now clear, and there are so many books, by the way, that have been published on this, that the Emirat, Egypt, Saudi and Israel got together and researched how to support the candidacy of President Trump before he was elected. You, you can read the material yourself. There are so many books that have come out with very specific details. George Nader, the pedophile who's now in prison, was among the chief architects of these meetings between the Trump campaign, Saudi, Emirati, Egyptian, and Israeli politicians. In this, we ignored the fact that the Trump administration is a main supporter of Islamophobic forces. What does Islamophobia do? If you don't know, just go on the net and see how many people make a living from attacking Islam night and day. And you know what? These same hadiths about, they say Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East because those Muslims, they don't know anything except that despotism. Their, their, their prophet taught them you have to obey the ruler blindly. They, they, they are stuck at the divine right to rule. They can never progress exactly what colonialism said and exactly this type of stuff we hear from some Muslims in the West today. But you know the big irony? There was a meeting recently, last week, where between Emirati officials and major representatives from various Jewish movement, Jewish organizations from Europe and they met in Moscow where the Emirat funded a major effort to combat anti-Semitism in the West, in Europe particularly. The Emirat, and you can look up the story yourself and you can read it yourself, and you can read the interviews given by various Jewish officials, is funding the war against anti-Semitism. My hat's off to them. Anyone that fights hatred, I'm with them. Anyone that combats discrimination and intolerance, I support them. But, If you are going to fund the war against anti-Semitism in Europe, the least I can expect from you is to support those who want to fight Islamophobia. You can't pick. You can't say I hate intolerance when it's directed at Jews, but I support the Islamophobes. 
Because let's wake up, the Emirat does. So Christian evangelists evangelist just had a second meeting in Saudi Arabia just not too long ago. But the Emirati role in supporting Islamophobes doesn't compare to anyone. I don't understand what the heck Emirat is doing. India is building concentration camps for Muslims, imitating China, and, and the Emirati government gives, what's his name, an award. You're going to put Muslims in concentration camps and the Emirati gives you an award. And then turns around like saying, bravo, you're going to, you're going to oppress and discriminate and kill and rape Muslims. Good job. And then goes and turns around and gives millions of dollars to fight anti-Semitism in Europe. The Emirat buys property from Palestinians in Jerusalem and sells it to Israeli settlers. Research what the, the, the record of, that the Palestinians have documented. The Emirat is supporting Yemen breaking up into south and north. More importantly, more importantly, well, well before that, the Emirat had nothing to say about the amount of Muslims suffering in China. Well, just not just Emirat, all Muslim countries with a few exceptions. But, and also nothing to say about the Rohingyas. Absolutely nothing. In political international forums, the Emirat has been extremely unhelpful when it has come to the Rohingyas or any human rights issues in which Muslims are persecuted. It is as if the Emirat wants to take off its Muslim guard and prove to the West that they are more white than white, more colonial than colonial. But more important than all of that is the money that the Emirat pours into supporting Islamophobic organizations. So you go support the war against anti-Semitism. I respect that. But how about your own religion? How about Muslims? Or are they not human beings? Or is it that you, you support you, despots? Muslims only deserve to be ruled by despots and have their rights violated and their women raped. And then when it comes to outside the Muslim world, then you talk tolerance and peace and, and rights. Now why do I care? And again, people, I wouldn't care about the Emirat a single bit, except for the fact, except for the fact that they have bought so many of our scholars and imams in the West. And those same people have restored very reactionary and backwards ideas that come from the heart of darkness. The darkness that is in the Islamic tradition, because like all traditions, we have light and we have darkness. And Allah gave us the intellect to pick the light and shun away the darkness. It is up to us. It is up to us to research our tradition and say, this is beautiful. This is more consistent with what divinity is and what the modern moment is. And we elevate this to great heights. And then we go to the darkness and say, this cannot be part of Islam. This has to be forgotten in the trash bin of history. But instead, Convert Muslims are doing the opposite. They go and they, they search around in the Islamic past and they bring the trash and put it out again. And they leave us all confused. Allahumma <laughs> وانصر الإسلام وأعز المسلمين يا رب العالمين الله forgive our sins and guide us to a more righteous path 
and guide us to the path of truth and justice and wisdom and make us live up to the rights of your religion and the entitlements of truth and virtue, Ya Allah. Amen.